0: This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Here to help me introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, who do we have on today?
1: So this week's guest is Stephanie Shriok, who is the former president of Emily's List, which is a political action committee that helps elect pro-choice Democratic women to office. Um, some of their success stories you might know. They include your former boss, Hillary Clinton, three of the four original members of the squad in the US House of Representatives, and our vice president-elect, Kamala Harris. Um, And one of my personal favorite parts about Emily's list is the name. Did you know that Emily stands for early money is like yeast because it makes the dough rise? Yeah, hell yeah. AKA the group believes that you need to raise money early in a campaign to succeed.
0: I mean, it shows you what women are up against because, you know, when they started 30 years ago, That was a big problem. It's like women couldn't raise money. And, you know, it's just a different set of obstacles for women candidates than there are for men.
1: Yes, but Congress is about to have its highest number of women ever after the 2020 election. Still less than a third. But when Emily's list first started in 1985, women made up just 5% of Congress. So definitely huge leaps there. Um, I did just get the updated numbers from Emily's list. And since its founding, the group has helped elect more than 150 women to the U.S. House of Twenty-six women to the Senate, sixteen governors, and about thirteen hundred women to state and local office. The flip side is that Emily's list had fewer wins in twenty twenty than it did in twenty eighteen.
0: Democratic women didn't do as well in twenty twenty as they did in eighteen, and so I want to ask her: like, does she think Democratic women candidates have plateaued? Maybe uh, Republican women had more gains in the twenty twenty elections. That was something new that we saw, and. We're going to have the first woman, uh, first woman of color become the vice president this month, too.
1: Speaking of that, Stephanie and Emily's List was part of a group of women's organizations that defended Kamala Harris against media attacks when she was announced as Biden's running mate. Obviously, that didn't stop people. So we had Stephanie read something Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa tweeted about VP Elect Harris after her debate with Mike Pence.
2: After the Pence-Harris debate, the winner is usually the one you would want to have dinner with. I think pants would get the invitation. Most likable. Yes, from our friend, Chuck Grassley.
1: I don't think you have to be a communications expert like you, Jen, to hear why that's gross. (laughs) But you do always have fresh insights, so what do you hear in there?
0: So this is a good example because it sounds relatively innocent, right? It's just like who you like more and, you know... Politics is partly about a popularity contest. But, you know, it's very telling to me that in a debate between a man and a woman, Chuck Grassley focuses on who do we find the most likable? I mean, what we like is what's familiar to us. And women who are running for leadership positions are still a little unfamiliar. We're still a little uncomfortable with them. And that's what you see reflected there. And so it's frustrating to still see, you know, questions about her likability and her ambition But I do see progress. It is actually getting better. And Stephanie, you know, the work of Emily list is a big part of the reason why.
1: Yeah, I think things really started to change after the 2016 election when women started calling out the fact that focusing on women's likability and ambition or whatever else it is that that's gendered. I think that's when we really started to ask ourselves as a society those questions like, why are people threatened by ambitious women? And what about women makes them unlikable? Which is, you always say, is usually just the fact that we like what's comfortable and that's men in seats of power. Stephanie's written about her own struggles with criticism in the media too, actually. Um, So I definitely want to hear you ask about any tips she has to overcome fears of being in the public what individual struggles she sees amongst the candidates they represent especially women of color I've heard her talk about the difference between diversity and representation and how we shouldn't confuse those so I'd love to hear her elaborate on that so should we get to it let's do it yeah
0: Stephanie Shriok welcome thank you Jen I'm so excited I'm so excited you're doing this I'm excited I'm doing this I'm so excited for your book
2: Congratulations. uh, Can you believe it? I am just beside you all after you've already put out two books, I had to like start playing catch up. And to have Christina Reynolds co-authoring with me is such a blessing. And so we're very excited about our book, Run to Win, coming out uh, in January.
0: It's an excellent way to start 2021. You know, when Emily's List started, like reproductive rights was like a key, you know, cornerstone of what you were about, right? And that has expanded a lot since then. I feel like the pandemic has just laid bare how broken the system is, like how we so clearly do not value women's work as much as we value men. And, you know, I feel like that's why we have all of these inequities that are revealed. Women are the most essential workers, but they're paid the less. They also suffered the most layoffs. There's a lot of women that talk about how they're just not going to go back to work because it's too hard to try to manage caring for children and more. That still falls on them. Yes. And I get asked this question a lot myself about what I think is going to happen. Are women going to fall back because of what they experienced in the pandemic? And I'm not as good as this organizer as you, but I want to organize around this. But do you, Emily and sister, are you all thinking about like organizing around the issues that have just revealed themselves to be so broken for women in the pandemic?
2: We've done a lot of that over the years. It just kind of ebbs and flows because we are obviously deeply rooted in reproductive freedom because when we truly believe that if you do not have the ability to decide when and if you're going to have children, then you have nothing. You can't control anything. And we are, as women in this country, losing ground rapidly yeah. on reproductive freedom. And that should be very concerning. And not just because of the United States Supreme Court, though, that is terrifying, but because of so many legislatures that have just solidly turned Republican and the Republican Party just walked away completely from reproductive freedom and are now passing law after law after law as close as they can get to stripping down Roe v. Wade. They're doing it. So that's a huge problem for women in their ability to make economic decisions for their families and to work certain types of jobs or to really figure out what their family is going to look like. And so it's all tied together into the economic security of their family. And, and Jen, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a moment to lean into the, i Sheryl Sandberg language, but we should lean into this moment To make changes, it's for women, it's also for our families and our communities to have better childcare, to have better healthcare system that includes some healthcare in the schools, which we've seen in Europe works very, very well. I mean, I remember going to the nurse. Now half the schools don't even have nurses in the schools anymore. Yeah. We need paid sick leave. This is ridiculous that we don't have paid sick leave in this country and how people get paid and how... You know, treating home care workers, these folks, mostly women, not all women, but mostly women yep. who go into our homes and take care of our most vulnerable people in America. We treat these folks terribly, these employees. Yeah. So, like, when I think about infrastructure, which is such a big everybody's like, we got to oh. do an infrastructure bill. And you better believe we have to do an sure. infrastructure bill. And I'm like, okay, infrastructure in my mind is two things. It is, Physical infrastructure, so you go build those bridges and you go build those roads and you go get those good jobs and most of them are for men because that's kind of where men Mm -hmm. tend to go, good construction jobs. And infrastructure is what holds our society together. Home healthcare workers, healthcare workers in general, teachers, caregivers, childcare. You cannot have one without the other infrastructure includes all of that. And if we don't start thinking about it like that, then we're never going to get to the next place that we need to get to in this nation, which is equality, but also true security
0: for families. And that's why representation matters, right?
2: Absolutely. Because you got to tell the story. You got to have someone sitting at the table talking about how hard it was to pay for the care that Their grandmother needed at the end. You got to have someone who's going to tell that story because they're the ones who did it. And we know it from numbers that the women tend to be the ones who
0: are there. Yeah. And that's something else coming to light in the pandemic, too. Yeah. The never ending work hours for women, invisible work, especially mothers.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely right. And we've got to just really put that focus on there. It's going to make our society stronger. I mean, it's not, it's like, it's a win for everybody. It's, It's not just a win for women, it is a win for everybody. We have an economy that is set up today where you basically, as a family, need to have two incomes coming in. You just do. I mean, we could have a longer conversation about that, but that's where we are. And then there's the caregiving of the seniors, your parents, your grandparents, and there's the caregiving of your children. You know, they always call it the sandwich generation. Well, there's always a sandwich generation, always. Uh It's just, we're it now, Jen. (laughs) Oh, I know. And and then it will be the next one. You know, it's just like, it doesn't matter. There's always going to be a set that are taking care of kids and taking care of parents. We just aren't set up like this.
0: It is so true. Absolutely. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 71% of mothers with children at home are working. So, this is like a major population in America. And I'll use an example of one woman you wrote about in L in October as being one of the candidates that you would hoped would become a household name after 2020. Candace Valenzuela, Democratic candidate for Texas 24th District. She ran for office while at home with her toddler, five year old son, is taking part in virtual learning because of COVID. And She did not win. Um, There could be a million reasons for that. But, you know, one that sticks out to me is she just had so much to balance with that campaign. What's your take on that? You know, we're putting too much pressure on women, but like with women candidates trying to balance that with kids at home. Is that what causes them to lose? I
2: actually don't think that was the case this
0: particular year. It was it was definitely an added
2: challenge, but it's always it's a different kind of challenge non-pandemic when you've got little ones because you tend to travel more. So the difference this go around was that they were home with their kids, trying to do all of the things that you do at home. In 18, they would have been on the road, not at home (laughs) with the kids. As
0: it turns out, being a working mother, whether, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's it's never easy. And so you've been at Emily's List for 11 years, right? Yes. I can't believe it's been that long. It's so funny to me. I can't either. It went so fast. I was like, wait, Stephanie just got there. That's what it feels like. But you're leaving. So tell us why have you decided that you want to leave now?
2: You know, it has been just an extraordinary 11 years. I have learned so much. I've worked with so many great people, particularly women and younger women. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Like the next generations of women coming up are such badasses. I generations love so of women
0: much. candidates, generations of women staff are both. both. That's yeah. what's so cool. Like yeah. both. And so I, you know, after 11 years, I just felt like,
2: you know, it was time for me to step away and Let somebody else come in and Mm -hmm. take it to the next level. And I don't know what I want to do yet, but I want to try something new. And I'm really excited about the world of opportunities because I do think that there's just also a lot of opportunity for women's leadership in a lot of ways because we have so much to do and we need desperately more and more women's voices and diverse women's voices at every decision making table. Period, And I want to be part of that in a larger way,
0: right? Not just in politics. But did you have any misgivings after the election because thinking, like, is this really the time to leave? because we, we will have more women than ever serving in Congress, But that's partly because of gains made by Republican women. Seventeen Republican women were newly elected to the House while just nine new Democratic women were elected. You all had a huge year in eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. 2018. Gigantic. Gigantic year. Gigantic historic, <laughs> historic <huge> year <laughs> of de- electing Democratic women to the House. And to governors and, you know, all of it across the board. Do you think on the Democratic side we've plateaued some? Yeah, no,
2: no. It's I have this running, my staff laughs at me all the time. And I even tell candidates, I was like, you have to win a primary. If you want to win a general,
0: (laughs) there's
2: like something about getting on the general election ballot. Got to do that. Right. I know that sounds so simple, but early on at Emily's List, I realized that was the key because once you're on the general election ballot to the party committees, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you are a Democrat and you need to win. So the resources come in if you're in a competitive seat. So the deal was you had to make sure that women were in those general election spots And let me tell you, not always easy.
0: No. They don't clear those primaries for those women. They don't.
2: I had some pretty extraordinary conversations early on in my tenure where they're like, why are you recruiting a woman in this district? We already have a male running. And I'm like, there's going to be a primary. But we finally got them to a place where it's like, okay, here's the thing. Pre-2016, because I think there's a divide. There is a moment of division. Right. Pre-2016 women tended to take a little bit more time to make a decision to run for office because they always factored in their families. Uh And so we would always be the ones who were coming into the primary and making a primary. And then I was like, we got to get in faster because then we can be the ones who are like, why are you running the guy against our gal? Right. Right. And that's what started happening. So back to the original, sorry, that was a long way to go to say Sometimes it's just plumb about the year of the party, and for the House and the Senate in 2020, it was a Republican year. If it had been a democratic year in 2020, yes, it would have been all about women picking up seats on the Democratic side. But the Republican women, finally, in the first time I've seen it, won. The primaries, there were more women on the general election ballot. And so when they had a good year, they had more women who came in. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Right. I think that's a good thing. What I'm curious about is whether or not this will continue with the Republicans or not. And I don't I don't know.
0: Well, let's talk about what you have accomplished. Like, here's a list of names of women that were lifted up by Emily's list earlier on in their careers. Kamala Harris, Tammy Duckworth. Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Hillary Clinton, Kirsten Gillibrand, Governors Gretchen Whitmer and Ann Richards, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. So, how important is it that you are there at the front end? How do you do this? Well, for so many, and it
2: varies a little bit depending on the woman and, and mm-hmm. who's jumping in. Because not everything's the same. That's that's the one thing I like to say. Like, different women need different things because we're different. Right. <laughs> right? Right, I right. Like, we're not all one thing. Right. But they need different support than men, too. That's right. And they're tending to not come out of the system that has already trained so many of the men. So they're just starting with a deficit. And it's not just financial. It is... How do you find staff when you're not part of the establishment that's going to hand you the staff? But just even thinking through telling your story, because I think for so many women, not all women, and Christine and I talk about this in the book a lot too, it's about being able to tell your story and be confident that it is a story worth telling. And I'm going to say this to everybody who's listening, everybody has a story that is worth Listening to, hearing, every human being has a story that is worth sharing. And part of what we do is really work with women who are getting ready to run for office to talk about their story, how it relates to their community yep. and potential voters, and then the making that connection, which means you have to talk about yourself. Right. And I think for a lot of women, that's hard because you're always worried about everybody else.
0: Well, I think it's hard for women to talk about themselves because, you know, you've been sort of socialized to not do that. But also the stories that we've been told over our lifetime are rarely by or about women. You know who didn't think she had a story is Hillary Clinton. That's amazing. <laughs> when we were trying to decide how she should announce her president and like where we should do it. And, you know, I wanted to go to California. Her mom, you know, her mom had a terrible childhood. Mother was put on a train at a very young age, sent to California to live with family that did not want her. Her parents had abandoned her, basically. And I was like, let's go to the train station where your mom ended up in Alhambra, California, and like tell your story. And Hillary's like, I don't have a story. My husband has a story. Barack Obama has a story. I don't have a story. And... I could see what she meant, which was like, we like our leaders to mirror American stories, right? And Bill Clinton did that, right? Pull himself up by his bootstraps from Hope, Arkansas. He was sort of like a new generation taking over. Barack Obama, like, spoke to the promise of America. Even though we've been here all along and our stories haven't been recorded, I think women really believe that their stories don't matter. But my experiences for women candidates, tell me this is true. It's like, Their stories matter all the more because they're still a little foreign to us. We want to know, why are you running? Like, what is motivating you? Because they haven't heard it before.
2: Yeah. But as soon as they hear, they're like, oh, this makes complete sense. It's completely relatable. Mm -hmm. That's what's so powerful. And I feel like there was a shift in the women more willing to share their stories After sixteen, and I don't know. So some some something's evolving in the culture, which is also the Me Too movement, and and what you know, Times Up, and all those. There's a moment here where women are finding their power to share their stories. Unfortunately, those are negative versions of the stories, but the stories nonetheless. But we really do need to continue pushing through that because, truthfully. It works. <laughs> let's just just be blunt. Like let's just be calculating operatives here for yes. a moment. It works. Like oh my gosh, you know Amy Klobuchar talks about having to fight to ensure her daughter had more time in the hospital, and then you know fought to change the laws. That is. Every family story, you know, anybody who's having children, I should say, that's their story. And until you start talking about that, we were afraid to talk about being mothers and daughters and sisters. Yeah. It can be hard, but I had the honor. It was hard, but the honor of being with my mother in her dying days and as a caregiver standing with my dad and my brothers, we were there. That is part of my story. It is part of who I am now. And we need to talk about that because that's not different than other people's lives. What it is is it connects us to each other. And the women are so much of the connective tissue of our society anyway. Why wouldn't you want those folks, the women, you know, in positions of power who bring those day-to-day struggles and how you fix them
0: into office? It works. What's emerging in this, you know, in these like years, which I think are sort of watershed years of change in America, is a new American story that we need to tell because too many people were left out the first version. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, Stephanie and I will talk about how not all women face the same difficulties running for office or reaching the top in any industry. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. Our guest today is Stephanie Shriok. I was interested to see Deb Holland become named Biden's nominee to become Secretary of Interior. And she's the first Native woman, first Native person ever to be nominated to become Secretary of Interior. And that's important because Interior, that's the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And yes, it's still called that. Yes, it is. (laughs) And the Indian Health Service. Indian Health Service. Still called that. Still called that um, <laughs> it's part of Interior. But, you know, she was somebody that, you know, I came to know because of Emily's list from 2018. That's a good example of how she just ran for Congress for the first time in 18. Yeah. Won a difficult primary and then went on to become a member of Congress. And now she's going to be the first Native Secretary of the Interior,
2: which is going to be historically game changing for everything out west in particular. I mean it's all across the country, but yeah. being a Montanan, this yeah. is a huge deal. I cried. I I called Deb and I went, like the sappy message because I was crying when I heard that yeah. she got it. I or got the nomination. I know she's just we go through confirmation and she texts me back and she's like she's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm just so happy. I'm just like I'm beyond myself. I'm so happy. I can't just You know, I grew up in Butte, Montana in a state that has, you know, seven reservations and very few um, Native Americans live, you know, more today than when I was growing up, lived off those reservations. And so I didn't even know any indigenous people because everything was so separated. And the few times we would go and like sort of drive through the area and, and through a reservation because we're going to Glacier National Park and there's a reservation right on the um, western excuse me eastern side of the park and I remember going through Browning I'll never forget it when I, I think the first time I went through Browning Montana and I just didn't I didn't know what poverty was I mean I all of a sudden realized I, know. I didn't know what poverty was I thought I knew what poverty was like there were definitely folks yeah. who were struggling in Butte and needed help
0: but it was completely different It was, like, shocking. I went uh, to Pine Ridge with the Obamas. This is a reservation in uh, North Dakota, and I have never seen the Obamas so devastated. You know, they were both, like, you think things are bad on the south side of Chicago, and then you come to these, you know. They were devastated. We had to hold them for 20 minutes to collect themselves after they met with a group of uh, students.
2: That's why this matters so much. And what it means for women, too, because let's also realize that one of the many great tragedies going on in this country right now are the disappearance and missing indigenous women. It is a huge, huge problem that we are not addressing appropriately at all. So I think about Dev So She was um, I met her when she was state party chair of New Mexico, state Democratic Party Mm -hmm. chair. And we was working so hard to build up that party. Now, this was a time where they had a Republican governor. They, we were just in the process of trying to take back the legislature. Emily's List had a lot of women running, including Michelle Lujan Grisham was running for governor when Deb decided to run for Congress. And it was one of those races, because this is what has happened now in a beautiful way. Yep, There were women in this primary, and the other woman was really good too, a Latina. So we had a Latina and a Native American. So we're like, great. <laughs> this is super complicated. Yes. And... Um, Some folks actually recruited a Latino Mm -hmm. to run because they didn't think that the women, the two women, Deb and Antoinette, were putting it together correctly. And I was like,
0: oh, no, 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 no. You're like, I know what that means. Uh Uh-uh. Putting it together correctly.
2: (laughs) Oh, don't even get me started. So I said to these folks, because I'm like, I'm done with this. One of these two women are going to be in Congress. Yeah. So— save the money and save our money and do not recruit this guy he is actually a really nice man but sure no and they did it anyway and he started moving up which happens you know when you have two women and you got a situation and i mean we had to fight fight everybody to get one of these two women through yeah. Deb pulled it off because she'd put together a great campaign. But that's it. We stick with them and we fight. And that was in 2018. And there's story after story of how many primaries we had to fight to get women through. And then everybody's like, oh, look it. It's a great year of the women. It's just
0: all of them. They just showed up. Just miraculously waltzed into Congress. They just poof. So part of that work from 2018 produced The Squad, right? Yes. Yes. How do you think the squad has changed the image of women and politicians? That is an interesting
2: question because it also produced the badasses. So, the badasses are the group of women who came out of Homeland Security and are veterans. And yeah. so, they're women like Abigail Spamberger, mm-hmm. who is a CIA agent, Chrissy Houlihan, Mikey Sherrill, yeah. Alyssa Slotkins in this group. I know I'm forgetting Elaine Luria. I know I'm forgetting some. So, they're a military right. group. But the squad, who are like very strong-willed, smart as can be. Some of them came out of nowhere. I mean, think about AOC. Right. She literally came out of nowhere and is not, I will say, not an Emily's List candidate. It never was. Of all of them, we have no relationship with her because she just truly came out of nowhere and is a, just really impressive, particularly on the communications front. Right. Ayanna Presley, we worked with, in her city council races. We were getting ready to- I met Ayanna Pressley at
0: Emily's Sister Pen in 2015 for the first time. Yeah.
2: We could not be in the particular race she won um, because we have a policy of not running against pro-choice Democratic incumbents, unless there's a actual real reason to go in, usually an ethics reason, which there wasn't in this case. And we were kind of Cheering her on, um but something that we're dealing with is how do we proceed with all of these women running and a lot of them primarying people who are in office? Is it time for us to rethink that? so we are and we are worth trying to figure out what the next best because
0: it's a different change.
2: now these are high class
0: problems, right? Totally. There are lots of women running, women competing with other women in the primaries, and so you have different well, like you have different questions to consider, but the- we really do.
2: But I think what's important and what I want to make sure is I think it's great because uh, I think so many young women of color see the squad as this, you know, team of folks that they see themselves in yes. that. And they want to, like, be more engaged. And I think that is super, super important. And, you know, we can have lots of debates about the policies, but I do really think the policies are marginally different from each other. It's just sort of how they go about doing it. You know, Democrats want better lives for people, period. (laughs) Like, that's where we are. How we get there, we can debate. But I also think what's really cool about having the squad and then I think the badasses and what we saw in the presidential primary, even though we didn't end up with the woman at the top, what we saw in all of this is that there's more than one kind of women's leadership that's the other thing. Yes. And we've got to break through that too. And, and Jen, you must have, you think about this all the time. Like, I knew those women who were running for president, every one of yeah. them at some point were measured up to Hillary Clinton. Right. It's because right. Right. Hillary Clinton is the only definition of women's executive leadership. There's only one, and it's Hillary Clinton. And they're not, none of them are like Hillary Clinton like they're each very different and that's what's so cool about the squad and what's so cool about seeing different kinds of women and that's important
0: that is so critical i mean i just i love that with the squad that Young diverse women in America can look at the Congress and say, it looks like me, right? Those are women that I identify with. But they're polarizing and they're polarizing to a lot of women even. And I think you're right that the, the policy differences might be overstated, but it's women who move forward, draw a lot of fire. And these are women that like look different than anything we've seen before, taking power and being really effective at that. I think a few years ago I might have said if they want to be effective, they have to take it down a notch. You know, my younger self, less wise self, might have thought that. And now I was like, that's just what change looks like, right? People find it polarizing. Right.
2: Well, and you need to have all of it for real change to happen. You need to have the agitators and you need to have the inside players. You do need both. You do, you need both. Yeah, 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 yeah. And let's also be blunt. You know, particularly since we're two white women talking here. Yeah. We know full well that the women of color have a whole nother layer of racism that they have to break through. Yeah. They're under a different kind of microscope by far. Yeah. And and we will never truly understand. We can hopefully try to empathize and, and try, but because of who we are. And the world that we get to walk in versus the world they have to walk in, it's very different. And if the squad were white, do we think they'd have the same kind no, of coverage? No, of course
0: not. Of course not. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> of course not.
2: Like, absolutely not. Right. This is why they're so important to this next evolution of our government. Because our demographics are changing. This is this is the America. We, oh, we, we are all of us. Yeah. And we've got to figure that out.
0: On the Well, This Isn't Normal podcast, you said, and I'm going to paraphrase something like, we're trying to break the idea that diversity means white people represent white people, black people represent black people, Hispanic people represent Hispanic people. It doesn't have to match one to one. Explain what you mean by this and what's the difference between diversity and representation?
2: I think this is so important, particularly as we're going into another series of redistricting where... For decades, we have thought of redistricting meaning the redrawing of all of the congressional districts and the legislative districts and trying to put like-minded groups of people into one geographic area for representation purposes, which was almost always based on race, which means there are less opportunities for people of color to serve if you draw all of the people of color into one district all the time, which is what we've unfortunately been doing. But what I think is really, really important is that representation is spending time understanding the people you're serving from all aspects of life. Well said. That's what representation is. You have to like spend the time. I think about Lucy McBath and how much time she spends in her district understanding every bit of her community, black, brown, and white, Doesn't matter. She is their public servant, and she understands it. That is representation. Diversity is bringing her story and perspective into the conversation while understanding what else is going on. Right? You got to do both. Yeah. This is the true strength of representation. And you would think that after the country elected Barack Obama president of the United States, that this would not be an issue. But it is Lauren Underwood fell into this category in particular. Explain who Lauren is. So Lauren is an African young African American woman who is a, now a congresswoman in Illinois and just got reelected. It was tough, and this is a suburban exurban district. It was one of those suburban districts that is diversifying, but it's still, if you were to determine it based on race, it is definitely more white exurban suburban district. And when she started running, there was a real question about whether or not that type, I'm using kind of air quotes here, that type of district would ever elect a person of color. Forget gender, a person of color. Mm -hmm. We're like, how are we still having this conversation after we elected Barack Obama? But this was in 2017. Those questions are still happening. And part of the thing that we want to do at Emily's list, and Emily's list will continue pushing through, is that doesn't matter as long as the about to be public servant spends time understanding the community. And that is Lauren. She is in there, she is on the ground understanding what's going on. Doesn't matter, again, white, brown, black, doesn't matter what the racial diversity is. People have struggles, they need help, and they need service. And that's the difference, but the question still comes up and we have to break
0: ourselves out of this. We have to. Time for a quick break, but still ahead, Stephanie Sriak and I will discuss what it's like dealing with the media as a woman and how to get over your fears. Welcome back. We're talking to former president of Emily's List, Stephanie Shriok. So one thing in your book you talk about that I think is really helpful for women, you experience some pretty nasty attacks on your appearance, capability, weight, like all the stuff that you reveal in the book. It's so true. Your experience made you avoid media for years. And I know a lot of women do this. A lot of women in politics, even the women that work in politics are scared to talk to the media, be on television because of these concerns. So what advice do you have for women? How did you overcome your own fear? I got some therapy. (laughs) I'm saying
2: be honest. Because I I have battled my weight since I was a little girl and like back and forth and back and forth. And you know, I was an athlete and I played basketball and yeah. a swimmer and at went, you know, one point, like very, very, very healthy. And then I went to college and became a, you know, college student. Yeah. <laughs> Drank and smoked and gained a lot of weight. But I just have always, I mean, huge swings of weight. And was always really, really bothered by it because, you know, we live in, I mean, I like to think that the culture's actually getting a little bit on this front. It is. Because I look at the millennial generation and then also the one coming up behind it, and there's definitely a uh, less concern about it in like the coolest way. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I want that. Yeah, I'm so I love that, you know, and and I've had to really fight through it because the truth is, is it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, you know, if you're super skinny or you're heavy or you're this or you're that. It's like it's about your story and it's about how you share your story and your willingness to talk about your life, because guess what? Lots of people have these same fears and um, challenges that they overcome, and to show that this is not something that bothers you is really, really important. I think
0: it sends such an important signal. We need examples, and we have more examples. Yeah, it sends such an important signal, Stephanie, to like that to other women who are also not perfect that you don't have to be perfect because who's perfect to society is you know large, just see women of all ages, sizes, colors, you know, appearances, leading. And, you know, that's what's so great about Congress now. I feel like you do have a sense of that. I mean, still there's not, it's, you know, only about a quarter of the House of Representatives are women, but it is a diverse group of women in every way. And so you see all of these models of leadership. And that's when you realize, like, how, you know, you and I can be examples too, right? And you just, I find confidence comes from, within but it inspires others and if you can just be comfortable with your own appearance no matter what it is it's gonna help people in ways you can't you know imagine and the confidence is everything right it's all about it's all about confidence
2: it really is and if you can find whatever it is that makes you confident yeah you know and maybe maybe you have to have a little pep talk with yourself sometimes because maintaining it all the time is just like I don't know what meant me. Maybe there's some humans who can do that. I'm not one of those humans. But a little pep talk, or a little, a little bit pep like, talk, tic- hey, or just like I'm here. Yeah. Look at what I'm doing. This is amazing. You know, you it's gotta just, tell
0: it. I mean, the other thing that I tell women like us, you know, that work in politics, because a lot of women don't want to go on cable or be on the record in the newspaper because they tend to go behind the scenes, but also a little scared about being criticized for whatever you say and. It's like so important that women do speak up because otherwise, if it's only men quoting the story, they're writing the political narrative. There's two other pieces of that I think about, Jim. Yeah. Is
2: one, so many women do not want to make a mistake. Yes, that's the fear. Like one mistake feels like a disaster. And the harsh reality is, is that women still don't get to make as many mistakes. So it's not out of, pure lack of, you know, confidence or fear of risk, but there is like, we got to keep pushing through that, Hey, we're going to all make mistakes and women make mistakes too. And we've got to get society used to the fact that women make mistakes just like men make mistakes. Yes. But we got to do more of it. We just not say we have to make more mistakes. Just if we do more, there'll be some more mistakes. That was my biggest fear was what if I say something wrong? Yeah. And it will be disaster. Well, no, it won't ever be a disaster. Like particularly in today's news cycle where nothing lasts more than 10 minutes. It feels like, like you really are. Yes. Okay. So one, one is the, I know we're supposed to be perfect. No, we do not need to be perfect. We need to be us. And then we got to get over that. No more perfection progress.
0: Yes. You're so right. I'm always like, don't let perfection get in the way of progress. <laughs> That It's like not perfection, progress. And women, I think that we have to tolerate mistakes in others. So when our colleagues make mistakes, we got to be like, it's not a problem. And then we have to tolerate it in ourselves. And the more you're out there, the more mistakes you'll make, but the less it'll matter because there's just more and more content. And so when I make a mistake, I allow myself to wallow in it for about 10 seconds and be like, ugh, that was terrible. And then put it on my mind. Thank you. It's taken some practice, but it works. I'm able to put it on my mind and move on. Exactly. And that's a good way to do it. The other
2: thing, and I'm sort of calling out to our leaders, our women leaders and our women elected officials, not the candidates, but the ones who are there, we need to see you more. Mm. And I think what happens, and this is why we love them and I do, they are like, worker bees they're like yes we need to see you yeah. and get stuff done oh oh yeah and by the way they still have to go home and take care of laundry and kids and all this other stuff so part of the problem is just time right. and the ability to do it but you and I look and see who's speaking on the Sunday morning shows because we're in politics. Mm -hmm. And it's like men, 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 one woman, men, 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 woman, man. And I'm always like, please, I need you to go out and speak more. And I talk to our elected officials all the time about this. And it's not that they don't want to necessarily. It's that it's not a high enough priority on the long list of priorities that they have to deal with. And I actually think we need to force it up because the more women and men see women out there speaking, particularly our elected officials, the more normal
0: it gets. It's part of the job. And I think women think it's not part of the job because they think that it's vain or that it's drawing attention to themselves. We sort of gravitate towards being behind the scenes and you are not doing your job if you're not being as public as you can be. Thank you. So we have to wrap, but I want to do one more question for you. Yes. I'm going to give you a final word about our first woman vice president elect. I literally get goosebumps every time this conversation comes
2: up. I'm so excited. I mean, vice president elect Kamala Harris. I just like to say the whole thing. Sure. I think she's just going to be extraordinary. And back to It's hard to be what you can't see women and women of color across this little girls, little girls across this country who are going to see this amazing woman with this amazing story serving as our vice president. Like we won't even understand. That's the thing. You don't even understand the impact Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to have, but it's having. It's already having.
0: So that's coming in January. So cool. Yes. Vice President Kamala Harris, as well as Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing in the World. What date is it released? What date is it actually out? January 12th.
1: Soon. January 12th.
0: We're just so excited. It's going to help a lot of women because I find like politics is where these sort of obstacles for women are brought into the starkest relief. But the lessons are applicable across the board. Right. You got it. You got it. Well, thank Happy you. Happy New Year, thank my friend. so much. Thank you.
1: Yes, you too. Happy New Year. Sari, you there? Yeah, great first guest for the new year. I feel like I got so many actionable tips from Stephanie about how to remind yourself of your worth, if you want to feel confident, um, to let yourself make mistakes. And then for those who want to run for office, how important it is to get in the race early.
0: I mean, the thing that really I thought was so smart was when she talked about infrastructure. Yeah, you know, we talk about infrastructure and we think narrowly about roads and bridges and she's like that's not the infrastructure that's needed to support life and support society and to enlarge that to think that's childcare, that's healthcare. You know, that's a small example of what it means to have different kind of representation and how representation in politics changes when the people that are involved in it change. And I thought that was so smart. And then the other thing just so we're talking that comes across to me is, you know, trying to do something you haven't done before or change the way things are done. You will make progress, you know, and I thought it's good. Stephanie said, you don't have to be perfect. Look for progress. You know, it's a great model for how you're intentional. You put effort into it. Things change <laughs> like it does
1: happen. Yeah, I was going to mention that last bit, too, because it's true. Like women tend to be perfectionists and we're so hard on ourselves for so many reasons, One of them being that we are criticized more aggressively than men. So we try to control what we can. And we feel like making mistakes is something that we do have control over, uh, whether or not that's true. But we do have to get over that because it can hold us back. And like you said, tolerating it in ourselves is the first step. Um, I also think it's really important that we see women make mistakes and survive those mistakes because we have way more examples of women making mistakes and getting torn apart for it. We never hear from them again because, you know, we don't trust them anymore. And I think seeing women make mistakes and getting right back up again is part of the progress that Stephanie's talking about.
0: And you you can do it in your own life. I mean, I used to hold myself back to do things for fear of failure. And it's not like I succeeded everything, but I just you can learn to tolerate imperfections in yourself I am here to tell you it is possible
1: actually one of the lines um we discussed in Stephanie's book is you have so much to bring to the table and you can learn the rest and I think that's another example of like tolerating that you might make mistakes but you will learn and you have so much to bring to the table as a baseline so I think that's just so poignant
0: yeah that's really good advice really good advice
1: yeah great kickoff to the new year
0: yeah happy new year
1: happy new year
0: Thank you to Stephanie Shriok for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Ali Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castor Roussel is our executive producer.